This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Southeastern understands that you have a strategic and valuable role to play in fulfilling the Great Commission. That's why they offer their Master of Divinity to provide rigorous biblical and theological training for your current and future ministries. Their Master of Divinity offers broad ministerial training while facilitating a deep engagement with the Bible, all within a community of holistic spiritual formation and discipleship. Come be shaped as a Great Commission Christian and experience theological education to the fullest. Visit sebts.edu slash mdiv to learn more or check out the show notes for the link. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a keynote message from Paige Brown. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. Take out your Bibles, if you've not already, and turn to James chapter 3. We are going to pick up exactly where Jackie left off this morning. So pick up with me right there in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit 
yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, that seems almost like a brainstorming board of like everything that's wrong with me. And it's like, is there any coherence here at all? And you know what? We just don't want to see the coherence that's here. But it's right there. A group of us from our church were going, we were reading, we were tutoring reading at a nearby elementary school whose students are all below the poverty line. And we were going to be doing third graders for the year. And the first week we were there, I was assigned a little boy, and he came and sat down beside me. And as I'm pushing the picture book over in front of him so that we could share it, he looked down. He was like, where did you get that ring? And I said, oh, oh, my, my husband gave it to me. He goes, you got a husband? And I said, I do. And he said, does he have a job? And I he, he does. And he goes, does he have lots of shoes? And I said, yeah, he does. And he said, does he have a car? He, he does. Did he get you a car? It, he, he did. And he said, like, he goes, so you are really rich. And it caught me so off guard. I was like, no, 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 no. And I stopped and I said, I am, I'm really rich. James asks a lot of questions in this passage. And what we don't realize is that they are diagnostics. Now, I hope you know, God never asks a question to get information, only to give it. He never asks for investigation, but only for indictment. And he asks a number of questions through James. Do you think you're wise? Why do you fight and why do you quarrel? Who are you to judge someone else? Do you have any idea what's going on inside of you? Do you think that you can be spiritually savvy and uh, that you can be spiritual and savvy at the same time? And you're like, okay, okay, okay. And then he says, so do you realize that you are worldly? Whoa. Say, I mean, I might be a lot of things, but nobody has ever called me worldly. I mean, worldly depends on like what you wear and what you spend and what you watch and whether you're like a TikTok star. And that's what makes you worldly. And anybody can tell you, we drive a really old car. We homeschool our kids. We are, we are just living hand. We are so not worldly. None of those diagnostics are here. Confucius said in 500 BC, the beginning of wisdom is learning to call things by their right name. 
So the reason that this talk is called wisdom tonight is it's wisdom about one thing. Wisdom to discern our worldliness. Wisdom to discern our worldliness. And we're going to impact that in three ways. The first thing that's required of us in this passage is the recognition of worldliness for us here. So that's why this passage is about wisdom. It starts with our recognition of worldliness. And we're going to recognize worldliness here in three ways. James digs deeper and deeper and deeper. First, we have to recognize it in our logic. So true wisdom that Mary taught us about last night is a God-given, God-centered orientation that permeates every part, not of our thinking, but of our living. Okay, wisdom is not a what is, it is a how-to. It always is shown in a beautiful lifestyle that's described for us there in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. It always issues forth in a beautiful lifestyle that's lived in meekness and in humility. So what those other verses that we read in chapter 3 say, not what you know, You might be terribly, wonderfully knowledgeable, not about being knowledgeable, but living in the way that is described in verses 14 through 16. And at the same time, claiming to be wise is a big fat lie. It is a false boast here, according to James. And yet there is a logic at work here. I got to take care of me. I got to take care of my people. I've got to see if I can get something going on here. I got to get what I deserve. I see all these other people at work or at school or in a social setting, and everybody seems to be doing better than I'm doing. All of their kids seem to be doing better than my kids. I've got to make something happen. And that is the logic here of the world. I got to promote me. And you know what? We're not even really ashamed of it. I believe the children are our future. Now, I know I got people of the 80s out there, okay? And you know Whitney's ultimate self-love anthem, right? The greatest love of all is happening to me, right? I found the greatest love of all inside of me. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That's actually promoted as emotional health. It's promoted because it makes such good sense. And if we're honest, it does sound sensible, except for the fact that it is soaked through with this antagonistic spirit of both self-concern. Look back at the past. I really don't want to see your face. I want to see the tops of your heads. Because I want you looking down to see that this is what's going on here. Okay? Look back at verses 14 through 16. It is soaked through with this antagonistic spirit of self-concern, the jealousy, and self-promotion, which is the selfish ambition there. And in case we think that it might be okay, he then goes, oh, and by the way, it's earthbound, it's unspiritual, and it's even demonic which is that same triumvirate of attack that's summarized for us in Ephesians chapter 2 of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's exactly what is going on here. But this is a logic. It is actually a proactive thought process that is centered in envy. 
Envy is at the core of all of this, and envy is the antithesis of Christian living because it grasps instead of gives. It is always self-seeking. It is always self-serving. And yet it's that logic of envy, it's that logic of jealousy and selfish ambition that opens the door to all manner of nastiness, or as James calls it, look down, every vile practice, all angry competition, all undermining, all meanness of word and deed, all promoting ourselves over another, all rejoicing in the hurt of another, all resentment in the good of another, all of our boasting, all of our rivalry, all of our identity and success and possessions and position and status. Those things don't happen. They're actually our calculated approach. And unless we're sitting like in a Bible study or a Christian conference, we see that in ourselves and think, that was pretty savvy. That was shrewd. That was smart. That was streetwise. What's happened in that logic is that the vile is actually cool. The vile is actually cool to us. How do we recognize that we are worldly? It will show up in our worldly logic that leads to every vile practice. But the recognition goes deeper. Not only must we recognize it in our logic, we must recognize it in our longings. And when James begins to deal with this, he like pulls out the x-ray machine on our hearts because he's not just dealing with our subtle calculations of our logic. He is dealing with all of our gut desires, And so he brings out the x-ray for the gut, or as the Bible would say, on the heart. And you've got three areas of longings here that at first seem scattershot, but you begin to see them take shape. In the first place, we must recognize it in our passions. Look back at verses one and two in chapter four. And, you know, it's interesting. The King James actually has better language here than any other translation because it's so stark. From whence, it says, comes all of your fighting and animosity. And it says, from thence, it is all of your desires and passions within you. From whence, from thence. This is not some great mystery. Look, he's saying, look at your own heart and it's right there. I did a million years of university campus ministry at Vanderbilt and then later at the University of Virginia. And I was sitting with a bunch of my close kind of leadership girls waiting for a meeting to start one day. And I had met with a student earlier that day that was struggling. And I just asked if any of them knew her that, that she was really struggling with loneliness. And one, one of my friends said, yeah, I get that. You know, it's really hard to have good friends here. And then they all started chiming in. I agree with that. Vanderbilt has made me so snobby. Vanderbilt has made me so discontent. Vanderbilt has made me so competitive. Vanderbilt has made me so insecure. Vanderbilt, I know, Vanderbilt has made me so critical. Vanderbilt has made me always compare myself to others. I'm just watching this ping pong around. And I was like, you know what? I'd like to meet Vanderbilt. Who is this that has such power over you? Because from where I sit, there's no such thing as Vanderbilt. It's just you. It's just you. That's exactly what James is saying. Do you see all this yuck in your life and you're wondering where it comes from? 
From where I sit, says James, it's just you. He's not talking here about our inner conflict with ourselves. He is talking about our completely unchecked, unrestricted I mean, desires in our hearts that lead to nothing but conflict with other people. This is played out in conflict with other people. In 2000, there was a beautiful, visually beautiful film made. Ang Lee made this film called what? Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon. That could be the nickname for my heart. Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon that stands ready to pounce anytime anyone gets in the way of some desire upon which I've set my heart. We were, I mean, that's why so-and-so was my best friend in first grade for two minutes. And then so-and-so, I mean, why, why are we that way in our relationship? Because somebody got in our way. And Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon, I mean, why aren't you still friends with the people you used to be friends? Because their kid did something to your kid or whatever it is. Somebody got in your way. Again, envy goes right back to envy and covetousness in these verses, just like it did at the end of the last chapter, always looking for what we don't have and we think that we deserve. And all James is saying here is that we put our desires and our pleasures over every other consideration. You know what the word there is for passions or desires? It's hedone. And what comes from the word hedone? Hedonism, okay? It's all hedonism in that way. Now, James is so smart here because there's all this really strong language and he is completely dealing with the motivations of all the selfishness and the bitterness and all of the relationships of the quarreling and the fighting. But you know what he never mentions? What are the objects of the passions and desires I mean, what are people murdering each other over here? What are they fighting about? And he never deals with that content. He only deals with the worldly heart that can do that no matter the content. It's not certain things. It's not certain amounts. It's not certain positions. It's anything that shows that this is the way our hearts are. And we think he's got to really have big, bad stuff in mind here because he is talking about murder. And you're thinking like Wanda Holloway in the 80s and like the Texas cheerleader mother murders, you know, because there her daughter got cheerleader and mine didn't. Surely that's what he has in mind here. And we think there's no way that our small time, that our small time um, squabbles and arguments can be in view here. And yet if we think that our small time squabbles and arguments cannot be in view here, we have not heard Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount say that anger and insults and name calling violate the sixth commandment. Because the sixth commandment is exactly where he's going and the way that we violate that with our own hearts. This is not some notorious, outrageous, crazy passions that are calling, that are causing quarrels and fights among everybody. This is just normal, ordinary self-centeredness and self-interest. That's what he's dealing with. The daily, the normal, and even the acceptable desires that are just part of what? Living in the world. They're all understandable. We have empathy for all of them. We all share them in common. And yet he's stopping and saying, how do you recognize that you are worldly? Because it's showing up in quarreling and squabbling and rivalry with people. 
But he doesn't stop with just the passions. He takes the x-ray and he goes deeper in an an almost surprising way. He doesn't just deal with the longings that show up in their passions. It's the longings in their prayers. Look down here at at the second part of verse 2 and verse 3. We can be so self-focused. We can be so world-driven in our desires that we don't even bother to pray about them. Or perhaps we don't even dare to. I have to ask myself, am I harboring some desire that is so obviously outside of the will of God that I can't even pray about it? He's like, you don't have these things because you don't ask, because you really don't dare to ask, because we'd rather grasp than ask. Or maybe we get really, really bold and we do come to the Lord in prayer. And what are we coming to him in the Lord, to him in prayer about? To do our bidding. You don't have because you don't ask. Or he says, you do ask and you don't receive because all you're doing is praying about those very passions that are your enemy and not your friend. Look closely at what it says. It does not say that God will not hear and it does not say that God will not answer. It says, we will not receive. It's exactly what Mary was talking about that is in that first part of chapter one last night. Do we even want what he has already promised to give? This is the double-mindedness. Do you know that, that, that this, this use in James is the earliest usage of that double-minded language in all of Greek literature? James coined that term. To be double-minded, as Mary said last night, to be double-souled. James actually coined that term. Is Lord, will you get? And then he gives, and we will not receive it. I mean, the number of times my kids have said, I, I don't know. I mean, what should I wear? Oh, honey, I think you should wear this. No. <laughs> well, how should I study for this test? Oh, I think you should this and this and this. No. Well, what should I say to my teacher? Oh, you should say, you know, the, no. It's not that it was not offered. They will not. I mean, why did you ask me, right? And that's the Lord. Why are you praying about You will not receive what I am giving you. And you're like, well, I wish you would give me something else. He says, it just doesn't work that way. We cannot turn to God to serve ourselves because he doesn't just know our prayers. Even if you dress them up really nicely, he knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. He loves our prayers, but he knows our hearts. He knows all of our true desires and all of our true passions. How do we know that we're worldly? How do we recognize that we're worldly? It will show up in our prayers or our lack thereof. I mean, the number of times one of my college students would say, there's just kind of just nothing is working for me. Nothing is working for me. And I'm like, tell me, have you prayed about it? And they'd be like, well, I said, well, tell me what's not working. And then they would begin to describe. And I said, your best defense against that is to pray about that because you cannot pray and say, Lord, please help those people to be miserable with each other and break up. Please help everyone else to do terribly on this test. Please help this bouncer to have bad eyesight and believe I'm 21. I mean, how do you know if something is okay? Can you pray about it? I mean, part of the way we know we're worldly is so many of the things we want most, we would never dare pray about. 
And he is sitting here saying that that's what we've got to look at our prayer life to understand our our longings, but not just our passions and our prayers and our longings. He goes further to our presumption. Look down at verses 11 and 12. How dare you speak evil against a brother? How dare you play? See, this is this passion not only to have, but to be above. You know the adage, it doesn't matter what you have, you just have to have more than someone else. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself, you just have to place yourself more highly than someone else. And so he goes on here to say, not only have you placed yourself above a brother and a, or a sister, look down. You've placed yourself above the law. And therefore you are placing yourself above the law giver. When it says there in verse 11, do not speak evil, the word there actually is do not denigrate. And to, you know, to denigrate means to speak critically of someone in order to damage them, but it's not necessarily slander. This doesn't mean that what you've said about someone is not true. It's not whether what you've said is right. What James is saying is, do you have the right? Do you have the right to say that? Do you have the right to sit above them in that way? We will, in our worldliness, usurp God's place and sit in God's place. And he's so frustrated by this. Verse 12 says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And then he doesn't just say brothers and sisters. He says to judge anyone, because the word there is neighbor. Who do you think you are to judge anyone? Now, it's these verses that are an x-ray of me. I'm not necessarily a fighter. I'm not necessarily a quarreler. Oh, but am I a critic? About what? About everything. Did you see how they spent their money? Did you see how new the car was they got for their kid? Do you know what they let their child watch on Netflix? Did you see what she had on? Did you see what she posted? Can you believe who they're letting him date? I don't know. She never seems to be happy with her husband. I don't know why they spent that money. I didn't think they had that money. I'm wondering if they're just living on a trust fund. I mean, what? I mean, we question everybody's motives behind every decision. Every time that they spend money, and especially the way that they raise their children. And James says, who do you think you are to sit in judgment over anyone? Our worldly self-exaltation will show up in the way that we criticize and step on other people. How do we recognize our worldliness? We recognize it in our logic. We recognize it in our longings that are being billboarded through our passions and our prayers and this presumption over other people. But thirdly here, we recognize it in our loyalties. Look down. I want to see tops of heads. Look down. We recognize it in our loyalties. Back to our attempt at a divided loyalty. It's not just not recommended. It's impossible. Your heart cannot belong in two places. James is not here speaking of the loyalty of a customer or the loyalty of a sports fan. He is speaking of the loyalty of a wife. Look at verse four. That's why adultery is the charge. 
This is the loyalty of fully and exclusively belonging to someone already. That's why adultery is the charge and not fornication. Because he is writing to people who already claim and profess to be married to God. And he is saying, not only are you looking the other way, you are in friendship with the world. And friendship in the ancient Greek world was a much stronger concept than our friendship today. It was this lifelong commitment and pact of mutual, of mutual love, mutual understanding, mutual identity in that way. And so James asked again to expose the doubleness. If you think you can belong to the world while you at the same time belong to God. There are some times when we're back and forth and our ultimate loyalty, you know, is not at risk. Some relationships that you can bop back and forth. But marriage is not one of them. You cannot be married to one and dating someone else. And when this is saying friendship in the world, this is not talking about our care for the world, our steward, our, our stewardship in God's world. This is talking about our commitment to the fallen world and all of its institutions, all of its godless systems, and all of its values. And then he goes really even further because he doesn't just say, can you be committed to both? Can you even have intimate fellowship with the Lord while you're just longing for the world? Look at the language. Whoever wishes to be. Not whoever, I mean, whoever wishes to be. This is not whoever chooses the world or takes vows to the world or has made some seismic decision that they are going to belong to the world. James is here talking about just the normal catalog of everyday wants, everyday desires, everyday pleasures that just are centered in that self-pleasing life. And that simple old normal self-pleasing life is what submerges us in the world, even as we are turning away from the Lord. How do we know that we're worldly? Because that's what we are longing for. Let me be clear, because I don't want this to be vague. James is not here addressing all manner of worldly things. He is addressing how we are worldly about all things. Worldly about family, worldly about our kids, worldly about our church, worldly about our money, worldly about our jobs, worldly about all these things that are the gift of God. And it doesn't just say that it hurts God's feelings or that it taints our relationship with him. It says that just wishing this, just wanting for this, makes him our enemy. Sinclair Ferguson says this, where does adultery start? Often the marriage relationship has been jaded. We become prone to the attractions and the attractiveness of someone else. We begin to prefer to spend time with them. We find their company more stimulating. One thing leads to another, the friendship develops, and then we commit adultery. It may happen in a matter of hours, it may take months, but in the process, an enmity towards our spouse is built up whatever pretense is made. Listen, the fatuous expression, I still love her, but I'm no longer in love with her, confuses emotional conditions with personal commitment. How can it be that two people who committed themselves to spending the rest of their lives together can no longer tolerate living in the same house. Promised love has turned into enmity. 
That is an echo of our spiritual adultery. Although I still love God, this other love is important to me. I must have it. But the truth will emerge in the entail. I can no longer live in the same home as God. Enmity will build up against him, and he will become ultimately my enemy. Ladies, we have to check ourselves on this. This is one of those areas in life that no one else knows about you. No one else can do that for you. And so we have got to just stop right now and ask ourselves, what do I prefer, much prefer, to time with the Lord? Do I enjoy the company of secular people much more than I enjoy the company of godly people? Am I increasingly frustrated and bothered by the ways that I feel like the Lord is keeping me or especially my kids from fitting in? Am I tired of having to be different? What are the real goals that I am pursuing in my conversations and in my spending and then with my energy And with my registrations and my signups and my volunteer things, who am I promoting through all of those things? Do we recognize that we are worldly? How do we know it will show up in where we belong? Where is home to us? Jesus says it really starkly in John chapter 15. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. But as it is, I've called you out of the world and therefore the world hates you. Now you can say that verse in reverse. And for me, it's more telling and more helpful. Not just if you, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. But if the world loves you as its own, it's because you belong to the world. That's just all there is to it. It will show up. How do we recognize our worldliness? You know how condensation works? Two things are brought together that are such different temperatures that condensation forms. So if you make your car really, really warm when it's really, really cold outside, you end up with a lot of condensation on your windshield. Or if you take a nice, cold, icy drink outside in the summer, immediately it's in a puddle because immediately condensation forms. The only way around condensation is what? To keep it the exact same temperature as everything around it. Look for the condensation. It will show up. Do you understand that godliness will show up in the world as surely as worldliness will show up in the presence of the Lord? They've got to be so different that there's condensation. And where there is not visible condensation of the difference in my life and in your life, it's because we are swimming in the water. And James does not point that out with any talk of possessions or fashion, or social media, or entertainment, or education. He talks about it in the way that we want things and the way that we relate to other people. Now, all of the diagnostics hurt, but like all scriptural diagnostics, they're only there for one reason. It's always diagnostics to draw us. See, we expect that we're going to turn from this to verse 6, and say, and therefore God walks away from us. 
Because what? Adultery is legitimate grounds for him to do so. That's not what we find. This passage doesn't leave us in a recognition of worldliness. We move in the passage to the rescue from worldliness. And we start right there in verse chapter, in, in verse six. And it turns the whole passage because you know what you find in verse six is the best word in the whole Bible. But, but, and then it's followed by the best words in this whole book. He gives more grace. Our needs are greater than we ever thought. No one came to the Gospel Coalition saying, I'm worldly. Nobody, nobody ever says they're worldly. The same way nobody ever says they have money problems. Nobody ever says this. And yet he has pointed it out about us and then we feel our need growing and in response to that growing need and that growing panic, but... Not therefore, he walks away, but he gives more grace. How do we know that we are worldly? All the way in our hearts, because it shows up. How in the world then does he rescue us? He shows up. He shows up. And that's how we know what is in his heart. He came down from where he ultimately belonged. He came down as the very wisdom of God. He lived for us that perfect life. He earned for us a harvest of righteousness. Go back to verses 17 and 18 in chapter three. You know what you find there in that list of beautiful things. You find a summarized description of the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what you find there in those verses. He came and he came with no selfishness, singularly focused on pleasing the Father. He came with no doubleness, singularly focused on my redemption. And after he did everything right, he became the enemy on the cross to pay for my worldliness. You know what Martin Luther said, you took what was mine, and set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, so that I might become what I am not. To say he gives more grace is not a hallmark card. Grace is not just a nice thought. It is an accomplishment, a legal accomplishment for us. And what he is saying here is he will not withhold it from anyone who humbly asks for it. He gives grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Alec Motier, Irish theologian, has my favorite commentary on James. And he says this, I love it. What comfort there is in this verse, it tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation for there is always more grace. Even if we were to turn to him and say, what I have received is far less than enough, he would say, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Or as Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Oh, Jesus, full of pardoning grace. Listen, more full of grace than I of sin. 
Yet once again, I seek thy face, open thine arms and take me in and freely and freely my backslidings heal and love this worldly sinner still. Can he rescue us? And the answer is yes. Will he rescue us? The answer is yes. Does he rescue us? The answer is yes. And then he gives grace upon grace upon grace to convince us. Of it. Did you hear what that hymn says? He has more grace than I have sin. He has more grace than I have sin. He loves me more than I love the world. And that is the good news. It's not even implicit in James. It's so much good news is implicit here, but it is explicit for us. And so Jesus rescues us from worldliness, not only by paying the penalty for it, which he does, but by what? Making it unnecessary to me. He makes it unnecessary to me. How? He is absorbed with me. I am the joy set before him. So I am free from self-absorption. I don't have to be the prettiest. I don't have to be the best. I don't have to be the smartest. I don't have to be the most successful. I don't have to be the center. Because I already am to him. There is one to whom you are the prettiest. You are the best. You are the center. You are the most valuable. He loves you so much, it's crazy. That's what we do. I mean, everything that is worldly in us is trying not to grasp horrible things. It's trying to grasp the things that we have been promised in Jesus. You matter more than life itself to him. So you have already been given those things. We just have to be convinced of it. And so we need more grace. Our family works with an adult special needs group that we just love. And so we're all sitting down to dinner at one of our meetings. And the director says, okay, who would like to say grace? And one of our special friends just waving, you know, she said, okay, will you please say grace for us? Campbell stood up and she put up her hands and she said, grace. I like literalism. I like it. Okay. But you know what? That's kind of the whole story. We're all wordsy and everything else. And God is not wordsy here with everything that's wrong with us and everything we need. You know what he says? I give you more grace. And so when you can't even diagnose it or recognize it enough, put your hands up and just say, grace, Lord, give me more grace. Grace, not just to forgive my worldliness, but grace to free me from it. And so, of course, that's where the passage takes us. It's not just that we get covered, it's that we are transformed. So we don't just need to recognize our worldliness. We don't just need to be rescued from our worldliness. The third thing here is we have to have resistance to worldliness. And it's in all the right order in James as it should be because this word, this beautiful word in verse six of this compoundingly abundant grace is this this is then followed by this string of commands in verses six to 10. Boom, 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 boom. Like bullet point commands for us. And that has to be the order. It has to be a word of abundant grace that is then followed by commands. That order cannot be reversed. You know how jumper cables work? 
I found this out the hard way. Do you know how jumper cables work? What? You got to put them on in the right order, right? Red on the dead, right? And then you put red on the live, and then you put black on the live, and then you put black on the dead. Now, if you do it right, what does that give you? Unbelievable reviving power. And if you have those exact same ingredients in the wrong order, you will what? Blow up. And so when you have grace and you've got commands, you've got the same ingredients no matter what. And if you have them in the right order, abundant grace and then commands, there is unbelievable power for transformation there and for revival there. But you get them out of order, commands, and then grace, and you will what? Say it. You will blow up. Okay, you will blow up. And so James is in the right order. They are commands, but they are commands of response. Commands of response. And you've got to keep them there. And so whatever power the world holds over us, whatever power even the devil here holds over us, we have already been given the grace here to overcome, to resist. We're going to resist in three ways according to this passage. In the first place, we must reposition. We must reposition. The first thing is lowness as opposed to above. Michelle Obama said at the Democratic National Convention that their family motto had become in the face of slander and falsehood and media cruelty, when they go low, we what? We go high. Well, what James is saying here is where we've gone high, we got to go low. Every place that we have exalted ourselves, we have got to go low. So the bookends, if you look at verse 6 and verse 10, you've got two verbs there that are the bookends here of our resistance. um, Submit and humble. Submit yourselves and humble yourselves, not just in general, not before somebody else. Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves before God. And then it explains, because God resists the proud. Why does God resist the proud? It's like, I thought God welcomed everybody. Why does God resist the proud? Not because he doesn't like them, because they're not in a position to receive anything. I mean, it's like Fonzie looking at himself in his mirror with this comb, and he's like, hey. I mean, that's the deal. That's what pride does for us. Whatever the Lord is offering, I don't need that. That's why we will not receive, because we're proud. So the reason that God resists the proud is that they have first resisted him. They will not receive from him. And then submit is an enlistment word. It's actually a military word. It's an active word. It means to arrange under. We think of submission as passive, like, what else can I do? Submission is actively arranging our lives under the Lord and under here, his law. That's why it says you've got to humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves before God. Don't just bring certain sins to him. It's the same picture of denying your whole self and taking up your cross. This is our overall position. We have humbled ourselves before God. And the reason that wisdom is always accompanied by humility is that humility is true. It's not like I'm really awesome, but I'm going to pretend to be humble. 
Humility is accurate. (laughs) And that's why it always accompanies wisdom in that way. We reposition with lowness and we also reposition with nearness. Look at it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near. It's like a welcome home as he is running towards you with open arms. And this is this language of relationship that we are belonging to him and not just behaving for him. But nearness is not just a hope. It is a command here. We've got to cultivate it. Even when we already belong to him, we have got to cultivate the nearness. If you're already married, nothing's going to legally change that, but you've got to work on your marriage. You've got to work on the intimacy. And that is what is not just being commanded, but is offered us. And the question is, why do we draw near? To be near. I mean, the whole reason we're chasing the world is because we don't know what we have in the Lord, which means we've got to worldly distance and move towards him in that way. There's no need to envy or to grasp or to self-promote because we have everything in him already given to us and we will know it as we are near to him. So the first way we resist is we reposition. Secondly here, verse eight, is we repent. Again, has to think jumper cables. It's got to be kept in order. We draw near in order to cleanse and purify. We do not cleanse and purify in order to draw near. It is the welcome and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We are not repenting so that we might earn the welcome here of God. Jesus gives the reason, the love of Jesus gives the reason for repentance. It is never the result of repentance, ever. And so we sing that already my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And so therefore, look at the verse. Because my name is graven on his hands, because my name is written on his heart, therefore, I can cleanse my hands and purify my heart. But it started with his heart and not mine. It's because we've already been brought near. Cleanse your hands, purify your heart. That is the Old Testament shorthand for repentance. You will find that throughout the Psalms, especially. Hands, all of our external um, activities. Purify your hearts, all of our internal motivations. But then there's this emotional follow-up here because what repentance always means is I don't see my worldliness in relation to me. I see it in relationship to God Repentance never ultimately sees your sin in relationship to you. It sees our sin in relationship to God, and that's why there's mourning. That's what is so strange here. When you get to verse 13, there's, there's mourning in the midst of all this draw near. But that's why, because as we draw near, we understand that. Why are we mourning? Because we've betrayed him. We're mourning not out of a fear that he will ever stop loving us. It is out of a broken heart that we know he never will. It's not the fear of being abandoned. It's the certainty that we never will be abandoned. I have a couple who are dear friends from whom I have learned so much. And earlier in their marriage, the young husband was fighting a losing battle with sin that he had kept from his wife. And when he could just take it no longer, he went to her and said, I have to confess something to you. And I think it's going to change your opinion of me. And I think it might even change our relationship. 
And she said, stop. Stop right there. And she went over and she sat down on the couch and she opened her arms up wide. And she said, come right here. Lay your head right here and let me embrace you. And then you tell me whatever you need to tell me and you will still be right here and I will still be embracing you. That's when he started sobbing. That's what broke his heart. It was not a harsh response. It was the open arms before he'd ever even said anything. That's why there's mourning. That's why there is mourning. We can mourn now and rejoice later, or we can rejoice now and mourn later. But who we are requires mourning, either now or for forever. And it's David himself who is that great repenter who teaches us so much about repentance, who writes in Psalm 30, you, O Lord, have turned my mourning into dancing. We come low and he lifts us high. We draw near and find out that he already was near. How do we know that we've repented? Don't you always wonder, have I repented? It will show up in resistance number three. We reposition, we repent, and finally here, we reflect. Go back to chapter three, verses 13 and 14. There can now be this beautiful lived reality of a pure heart and clean hands. Verse 13, a beautiful lifestyle. It's a whole lifestyle, this conduct and lifestyle. A beautiful lifestyle of ongoing works done in the meekness of wisdom. Why? Because we are just receiving and reflecting wisdom from where? It tells us from above. We're only receiving and reflecting his wisdom. And that begins in pure love for him. It, it issues in with peace within and peace with other people. It brings a harvest of righteousness, that whole catalog of things that are there. But look down. What do you not see in that list? There are no verbs to do. There are no nouns to have. There are adjectives characteristics to be. It doesn't describe just certain things that we do or certain things that we have. It's character traits. It's adjectives to be. Who we are, who we are becoming because of who he is in us and for us. Do you understand what that means? No more worldly striving because there's no need. And why is there no need? Because we are exalted. All of the worldliness is just trying to lift ourselves up. And he doesn't say, you were never meant to be up. He says, you will never take yourself as high as I will take you. How high are we exalted? We're what? Seated in heavenly places. And yet that height is still not the best part. Thomas Chalmers, 1800s, Scottish political economist, theologian. The love, listen to this, the love of the world cannot be expunged by holding out a mirror of our imperfections. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but it may be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself, the love of him who is greater than all 
the world. See, it's not that we're going to be heavenly high. It's that we're going to be what? Seated with him, hidden, okay? That we are treasured in Christ with God. That is where my life is. It is now a hidden treasure. Talk to my youngest daughter today on the phone, my 10-year-old. I say what I always say. What are you doing? She's telling me, I said, but what are you? She said, mommy's treasure. And I said, and why am I sad today? And she said, because you love to be with me. What are you? You are not a worldly rich. You're his treasure. And what he loves more than anything is to be with you. He can never not treasure you. And we are drawn to worldliness, not because he has ever stopped treasuring us, but because we have stopped treasuring him. And so when we're ready to resist and we're ready to do battle with worldliness, it will do you no good to do nothing but take a good long look at yourself unless you are going to take a better, longer look at him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the mindsets and passions and ambitions and priorities of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace and grace and grace and grace. Let's pray. Father, give us more grace. And we know what form that grace will take for all of us. If you give us more grace, we will see Jesus more clearly and we will treasure him more dearly and we will follow him more nearly because we will learn more fully than ever before how much you have already perfectly treasured us in him. So we ask for more grace, confidently and expectantly in his own great name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.